Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. This morning we're going to talk about true and proper worship. Romans 12, 1. says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. But you know, I like what the NIV says. And this is kind of where I got the title of the message today. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. This is your true and proper worship. A.W. Tozer wrote a book about worship that for all intents and purposes changed my thinking about worship in the modern church. It's called Whatever Happened to Worship. He writes, Jesus was born of a virgin, suffered under Pontius Pilate, died on the cross, and rose from the grave to make worshipers out of rebels. He has done it all through grace, and we are the recipients. In other words, we were created to worship. God has put that desire into each and every one of us. It's in our DNA. The big question for us to answer, who or what will we worship? Who or what will we worship? Worship is from the compound word worship. That's the feeling or expression of reverence and adoration for a deity. It's the worship of God. It's the acts or rites or rituals that make up the formal expression of reverence for God. It can even be considered a religious ceremony or a tradition, as in the church was open for public worship. That is respect, reverence, and adoration. Directed at who? Directed at someone who is worthy. That's why that worship is very important. When we ascribe worthiness to God in any way, it's considered worship. In the modern church culture, we think of worship mostly in the context of singing and music. And although that can be an expression of worship, it's only external. And it is more the outcome of our worship than the true evidence of our worship. True worship begins in the heart. True worship is internal. And then it is delivered and expressed in various ways. Worship is used in the Bible 112 times. The Hebrew word for worship is shaka. It means to bow down before superior in homage, before God in worship. But notice that that definition also says it's to bow down before false gods 
It's even to bow down before an angel. So that word worship covers a lot of ground. But what does God prescribe? In the New Testament, the Greek word is proskuneo. That's kneeling or prostrating oneself. That's to, to show homage to someone who's worthy. And again, it could be to God, it could be to Christ, it could be to angels, and it even could be to demons. In the New Testament, that's the use. So these definitions show us that we can choose to worship many things. Some points about worship. Worship involves sacrifice. Worship involves sacrifice. That's what worship is all about, giving God our best. The first mention of worship in the Bible is in Genesis 22. And Abraham said to, the, to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship. And we will come back to you. you we all know the story. It's the account of Abraham's obedience to God by his willingness to sacrifice the son that he and Sarah had been waiting so long for. So Abraham, in his worship, was not going up on Mount Moriah with a song of joy on his lips. But what was he doing? He was going up to give the Lord something of value. Something of value. That's what worship is about. Giving God our best. But you know, that sacrifice that we give the Lord, that thing of value, whatever that is, it could be your time, it could be your talent, it could be your treasure, whatever that is that you're giving to the Lord, we can't look at that as considered working for God's approval. Because there's even a good work that we can do that does not glorify God. There's even a good work that we can do that God does not receive. In 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15, it says, According to the grace of God which was given to me a wise, as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than, than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. And if anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. And if anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. What is the Apostle Paul saying here? He's saying God tests our motives. He tests the intents of our heart. When we serve others, what is our motivation? Is it something that, that is for others-centered? Or is it self-centered? When it's self-centered, God looks upon that form of worship or serving as wood, hay, and straw. What does that mean? That means it has no eternal value. That means it will burn up on this earth. 
And as believers, our worship needs to be with the right heart. We talk a lot about worship in the context of songs, singing, worship teams, concerts. All of that can be done to glorify God. But much of it can also be done to glorify oneself. I've heard people say about Christians, don't be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. I like to turn that phrase around and say, don't be so earthly minded that you're no heavenly good. God calls us to serve others and to worship Him. And when we do both together, we accomplish His will and His purpose in this world. Paul goes on to write in Colossians 3, 1-3, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. The Apostle Paul is saying here, if we claim to follow Christ, if we claim to be Christians, we should be worshiping Him in everything we do. Our focus needs to always be on God. And doesn't God always have a way of just putting things in the right order, in the right perspective for us through His Word? The second point about worship. Worship involves obedience. The first one was worship involves sacrifice. The second point, worship involves obedience. Worship is reserved for God alone. And it's a commandment of God. He doesn't force anyone to love and obey. But when we do, it blesses the Lord. Look at the account in Exodus 20. It says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in, earth, in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. In verse 5, the word for bow down is the word worship. The word for bow down is the word worship. It's made clear later in Exodus 34.14. It says, For you shall worship no other God. You shall worship no other God. For the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Boy, God is the only one who can exhibit jealousy Without sinning, huh? How ugly sometimes we look when we're, when we're jealous. Because it's usually based on a prideful attitude, isn't it? But God's jealousy is beautiful. Because He desires a relationship with us. Listen, why is He jealous for us? Because He wants a relationship with us. And He doesn't want it mixed with the things of this world. He's a very jealous God. And you know what? When we give Him in obedience what He desires, we will see Him working in our lives. You know, there may be great preachers or, or even worship leaders that you admire, 
but none deserve the praise that should be reserved for God. Revelation 22 speaks about this. In verses 8 and 9, John writes, Now I, John, saw and heard these things after seeing a revelation of of the heavenlies. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. Then he said to me, See that you do not do that. For I am your fellow servant and of your brethren the prophets and of those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Worship God. So the angel that revealed those things to the, to the Apostle John did not receive worship because it was reserved for God alone. Third point about worship. Worship of, involves acknowledging His holiness. It involves acknowledging His holiness. God is set apart. That's what holy means, to be set apart. He's set apart from anything and everything that is sinful. And true and proper worship refers to ascribing to God value and then responding, responding with our entire being. In 1 Chronicles 16, it says, Give to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come before Him. O worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. In the beauty of holiness. God's holiness is beautiful because we understand how perfectly holy He is. And we can really only do that when we look at ourselves. So I would challenge each and, each and every one of us as we consider God's holiness to think about it in the, in the way that Isaiah did. When Isaiah had the vision of the Lord, when the Lord was calling him into service, this is what he saw and this is what he did. In Isaiah 6, verses 1-8, through 8, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two He covered His face. With two He covered His feet. And with two He flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of Him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke." What a scene Isaiah was given a glimpse of. And what were the seraphim saying? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. He's set apart. There's a beauty in that holiness. Isaiah goes on and says, So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips. See, Isaiah realized who God was in His perfection and in His holiness and then realized how far from that He was. We need to get to a point, brothers and sisters, Christians, that we understand our need for God and that we seek that daily. He goes on and says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it. 
And he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I, send me. Here am I, send me. What was Isaiah's response to God's holiness? What was Isaiah's response to the, to the contrast of God's holiness and perfection compared to his undoneness and uncleanness? He said, God, I need you to forgive me. He said, I, I need you to purge the sin from my life. God, I need you to do that work because I can't do it on my own. And then, God, I am going to serve you all the days of my life. What a great, awesome response. When we think of God and His holiness, our response should be worship. That's what worship really is. We respond because we acknowledge His holiness. We should be in awe of God's presence in our lives. The next point about worship is we worship God in spirit and in truth. We worship God in spirit and in truth. John 4, 20-24, we know this account of the woman at the well. And she's saying to Jesus, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, Believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and and truth. The woman at the well with whom Jesus was speaking was confused. She was confused about worship like maybe even some of us are today. She thought that worship was all about a place. Sometimes we think that when we gather together in this building, it's the only place that we can perform worship to God. Jesus let her know that the place had nothing to do with it. It was all a matter of worshiping in spirit. That spiritual worship. Spirit-led. Spirit-inspired. And that's true worship. We can worship Him in our cars on the way to work if our heart's in the right place. And we can worship Him in church on Sunday mornings, but it's really not considered worship because our heart's not right with God. Now we're talking about spirit-led and spirit-inspired worship. We're talking also about emotions. True worship has feelings attached to it. There's emotions there. Emotions come into this aspect of worship because we're expressing our love and affection. Isn't that emotion? Our love and affection for God in our worship. Many Christians think feelings is a four-letter word. That we need to leave our emotions separate from our 
relationship with God somehow. But think about, when we think about, really consider all that God is, all that He's done to forgive us, how does that make you feel? Doesn't some joy come up inside of you? Wouldn't you consider that feeling of just affection and love and gratitude toward God? And of course, our emotions also need to be under control. One of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. But we can't worship Him without our heart being in it. So we worship in spirit. We also worship God in truth. Truthful, truthful worship is based on the truth of the Scriptures as our hymnal. Now we sang a few songs today. And if you search through the lyrics of those songs, you're going to find most of them have a biblical basis. Some of them are taken right from the Scriptures. That's the truth that we use to worship the Lord. Our songs will be biblically accurate. And they should be. They should reflect God's Word. So we can't worship in spirit alone and we can't worship in truth alone. See, when God brings the both of them together, something beautiful really happens. It compels us to worship and then we respond with faith in the truth of the Scriptures. As we grow in the grace and knowledge of Him, we will respond with a heart of worship. And in the Old Testament, God gave all these instructions for particular ways of worshiping Him. Not because He was stuck on rules and regulations, but because He wanted to impress on His people and on us that He was to be the focus. He was to be the focus of worship. How easy it is to get distracted in our worship. But God wants to remain the focus of everything. Look what, look what it says in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. That's where worship starts, in our heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as a frontlet between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Everywhere that a Jew went, they would be reminded of worship. They would be reminded of God who is the focus of all of our praise, of all of our worship. And when you do that, it becomes part of who you are. When you do that, it becomes an internal thing. See, because worship is both internal and external. Our worship starts internally, in the heart, and then it's expressed externally with our whole being in various ways. And there's such a thing as vain or empty worship, isn't there? When we gather together on a Sunday or Wednesday, our hearts need to be from a sincere place. In Matthew 15, Jesus 
is speaking about the religious leaders. And he says, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. God forbid if that could ever be said for us. That as we're lifting voices with our lips up to the Lord, that our heart is somewhere else. That our heart isn't in it. Because whether you have a great singing voice or you can't even hit a note, God doesn't care. You know, the Bible says to make a joyful noise unto the Lord. And so today I, I encouraged you folks to sing with me that last song. Kind of helped me out. But, but what a beautiful sound to the Lord that is. And you don't have to be a great singer. But your heart needs to be in the right place. Pastor Joe is... Uh, and it's told me many, many times that he's not a great singer. <laughs> and Pastor Joe, I'll, I'll edit this out, but Pastor Joe, I must say that sometimes when your microphone is on, when the altar call is being played, I hear you singing in the recording, just so you know. <laughs> so there's such a thing as vain or empty worship, Jesus is saying. Because you draw near to me with their mouth and, and honor me with their lips, but your heart is far from God. Let's not have that. Let's not have that. Acts 2.42 speaks about that first century church, that early church that devoted itself to four external expressions of worship. See, we've already gotten that internal. We already understand now. It's got to be a heart thing. It can't just be the external. It's got to be something done in our hearts. In Acts 2.42, it says, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Four things that the early church devoted themselves to as expressions of worship. When we gather and have one or more of these elements in our service, we are expressing worship to God. As we listen to the teaching of His Word, we worship God. His power, His majesty, His goodness and grace are spoken of, are taught, and He's exalted as we learn more of His character. And as pastors, when we preach, when we teach, that's a form of worship for us. That's a form of worship for us. Paul writes in Romans 1.9, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of His Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. How, how did Paul worship the Lord? By preaching the gospel. He uses that Greek word for worship that's translated in the New King James as serve, but it's actually the word worship. So our serving can be worship. Acts 2.42 says whenever we're fellowshipping with other believers, it becomes an external expression of worship. We may have times of solitary worship like Bible study and prayer, but as a group Corporately, when we gather together, something beautiful happens. When we meet in the church and worship the Lord together. 
speaks about sharing a meal with one another as being part of worship. It says the breaking of bread. And historically, thinking about the culture, then the significance that was given to sharing a meal. As you partake of the same meal, we're nourishing ourselves right from the same place. We're becoming one, so to speak. It's a very friendly and intimate setting when we share a meal together. We can worship the Lord in that as we give Him thanks for what He's provided. And as we give Him thanks for the friendships and the fellowship that He's put into our lives. It's worship to God. In our prayer time, the the apostles, the first church, devoted prayer time as part of their worship. Whether alone or in a group, it's an external expression right, of worship, of what's going on in your heart already. I know I can only speak for the men's group when we get together. And we, when we pray for one another at the end of the teaching, the closeness that we feel to one another, because we're sharing, we're sharing either in that praise report or in that petition that somebody else expresses. At one of our most recent meetings, we went around the table at the end of the teaching and one man prayed for the guy sitting next to him. And I felt such an intimacy with one another. It was like a very personal thing. I'm sure that happens at women's prayer. I know it happens at our corporate prayer meetings. That you just feel an intimacy. You, you're, you open yourself up with one another. You express those things. And you know what? It's worship to God because you're giving it to Him. You're sending those petitions up to the Lord. So let's talk about what we really consider worship for the most part, and that's music, right? Because when we talk about worship, we have a worship night coming up September 30th. This is a big, long promo for the worship night, by the way. <laughs> it's awesome time. It really is. We have uh, different uh, teams coming in, and um, and everyone's here for that purpose, to worship Him in song. It says in Psalm 95, 1, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. You know, King David, who authored probably about half of the Psalms, exhorts us to sing to the Lord. There's something about lifting our voices in song together that glorifies God, and it kind of builds us up. When we commit a time in the service to music, I'm just going to let you guys know, it's not that buffer for you to get into the parking lot or get an extra cup of coffee or... And you say to yourselves, well, I have 20 minutes, so it's not extra time for you to get here. (laughs) Listen, it's important to preparing our hearts for the teaching of the Word. And when we sing together in His presence, it's a song unto Him. It goes up to heaven and it blesses God. And we praise an audience of one, right? 
because he's worthy. Some of our songs express praising him no matter what our circumstances. One of them is blessed be your name. Uh, Verse one, blessed be your name in the land that is plentiful, where your streams of abundance flow, blessed be your name. Blessed be your name when I'm found in the desert place, though I walk through the wilderness, blessed be your name. The writer there is saying, I'm going to glorify God. I'm going to worship God no matter what I'm going through. No matter what my circumstances are, I'm going to continue to worship Him. What a challenge to us as Christians. Some express the reason we gather together. As in, here I am to worship. Here I am to worship. Here I am to bow down. Here I am to say that you're my God. You're altogether lovely, altogether worthy altogether wonderful to me. When we bow down, when we worship the Lord, we're expressing that in our songs. Some of them, like the beautiful song today, Your Great Name, just speaks about our need for Him and realizing that He's the answer. God is the answer to everything that we need. Verse 2 says, All the weak find their strength at the sound of Your great name. Hungry souls receive grace at the sound of your great name. The fatherless find their rest at the sound of your great name. The sick are healed, the dead are raised at the sound of your great name. Jesus, we worship you. Thank you for the expression, the external expression of music in our hearts. Those songs were written all within the last 15 years. And I say that because I've had people come to me and that, sincere, sincerely and say, the worship songs that you play don't, uh, w- shouldn't be played in church. You should only do hymns. And so I have a particular philosophy about worship in the 20th and 21st centuries. And that is that I believe just as God inspired David, right, to write most of the Psalms, and Solomon wrote over a thousand songs, and then he inspired the hymn writers, didn't he, of the next 20 centuries to write beautiful hymns? Isn't God the same yesterday, today, and forever? Didn't he, doesn't he continue to inspire men and women to write beautiful, biblically-based worship songs? I believe that he does. Some people will say, well, you know, guitars, drums, cymbals are of the devil. They shouldn't be used in a worship service. I think back of the instruments that even David wrote about, you know, in some of his psalms. In Psalm 150, praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty firmament. Praise Him for His mighty acts. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him with the sound of the trumpet. Praise Him with the lute and the harp. Praise Him with with the timbrel and dance. Praise Him with stringed instruments. Yay, guitars. And flutes. John, this one's for you. Praise Him with loud cymbals. Praise Him with clashing cymbals. 
Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Amen? So look, when we gather together, it's not about the music. It's not about the instruments. What's it about? It's about our heart. It's about our heart. Is our heart in the right place? Is our heart in the right place? You know, guitars, drums, they don't have any intrinsic morality attached to them. They can be used for good and they can use, be used for evil. We use them to praise God. And we thank Him for that. I mentioned Tozer's book at the beginning, uh, Whatever Happened to Worship, and how it changed the way I look at worship in the 21st century. He wrote it in the 20th century, but it's applicable. Another quote from that book, he says, Something wonderful and miraculous and life-changing takes place within the human soul when Jesus Christ is invited in to take his rightful place. That is exactly what God anticipated when he wrought the plan of salvation. He intended to restore to men and women the place of worship, which our first parents knew when they were created. He goes on, if we know this result as a blessed reality in our own lives and experience, then it is evident that we are not just waiting for Sunday to come so we can go to church and worship. Why? Because worship is a seven-day-a-week, 365, all the time, in any place, activity that we as Christians should be doing all the time. One more quote from another book before I close. Pastor Randy Alcorn writes in his book titled Heaven, Some might wonder if all we'll do in heaven is worship God. Well, yes and no. No, because the Bible says we'll be doing many other things, eating, working, relaxing, learning, etc. And yes, because all that we do will show our appreciation for God as an act of worship that will never end. So what are we doing when we give our hearts to the Lord? What are we doing when our true and proper worship is a giving, a sacrificial giving of ourselves, an obedient giving of ourselves to God, what are we doing? We're practicing for heaven. It's like a heavenly rehearsal here. Every day we worship the Lord with our lives is just giving us an idea of what it's going to be like in heaven and even better because there will be no sin and we'll be face to face with our Lord and Savior. Let's practice. Let's practice for eternity. Because that's what we're created for. That's why God created us. Let worship become a daily activity in your life. And listen, you can commit yourselves to many different external expressions of worship, whether that's serving, preaching, singing, whatever that might be but it flows from an internal heart with an attitude of love, devotion, gratitude, and praise. Then when you come to church, sing your hearts out. Amen?
You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.